Whoa, hey, hello there. Well, hi. This is even before the episode starts, I think, is how I'm going to cut this baby in. <laughs> we'll find out. Yeah, so if you're listening to this episode, just know that this, uh, right now, as this episode is being posted, our lovely folk down at nerdsmith.com are in the middle of their super exciting subscription drive. Basically, Soap drive. Yeah, so basically, we're trying to get as much money and love as possible. Because love is equal to money in our capitalist society. If you need to think about it in a different way, as much love and money. So it works like a a sort of Patreon maximum fun style thing where, you know, you kick us some amount of money monthly and we'll give you back some cool extra stuff. So we have it tier styled. We have our cool ass sidekick $10 tier where basically, you know, you get access to all of our bonus content episodes that we have locked away on Nerdsmith. You have, uh, you get exclusive access to our Discord channel for, you know, subscribers. Uh, you get 50% off future what we call nerd alerts, which are basically just kind of like shout outs. Like if you, you know, write tooth and nail podcast at gmail.com and you're like, I want to propose because I want a really shitty way to propose to my spouse. <laughs> we can say it, you know, you know, who's not a beholder. Karen, will you marry me? <laughs> we can we can do our best to say some stupid shit that you love. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you get 50% off of those. You get an exclusive 2019 subdrive pin, which is pretty neat. We also have our $20 champion tier. You get all of that stuff. In addition, you also get one metal D6, ostensibly from Die Hard Dice, our sponsor, and a digital download of our Nerdsmith cookbook, which is basically like, uh, you know, all of us, I don't think we did it this year year because we came in yeah, a little bit we, late we couldn't do it this year we were a little bit late and we were a little bit busy with work yeah and other things but it is a compilation <laughs> of uh recipes brought in by all of the hosts and co-hosts in order to make a neat cookbook thingy nerd style so yeah. if you want your burger nerd style this is how you get it <laughs> don't go to in and out they'll look at you weird <laughs> hi can i have a nerd burger leave <laughs> so up next is the superstar tier so that's our 35 dollars tier you get all of the stuff you also get a cool nerdsmith mug and then also a physical copy of the cookbook in addition to the pdf yeah yeah uh and we understand like being broke ass nerds we understand if you're also broke ass nerds as well so we also have a teensy little five dollar minion tier where uh, you get the bonus content, you get access to the bonus content episodes, and then also access into the Discord channel as well. Yes, and it should be noted that this is these um, these exclusive uh, rewards and items are for new and upgrading donors. Absolutely, the, the higher tier rewards. Yes. yes, yes. So scoop you up some swag, treat yourself. You get you a mug, that way you can make you some hot cocoa in that mug. And that can be your tooth and nail mug. So, I don't want to take up much more of your lives or much more of this episode. Feel free to subscribe to Nerdsmith and enjoy whatever episode this may be! We appreciate you! Ladies, gentlemen, or what have you, I'm Orion Lavelle. And I'm Travis Mattingly. And I'm Joe Collins. And you're listening to Tooth and Nail, a monstrous podcast, where on this most magical of occasions, we got ourselves our first guest star. We brought in awesome Joe Collins from DRDM Podcast. Uh, yeah, everybody be cool. Yeah, nobody freak out. 
Star is a very generous term, but I appreciate <laughs> it. <laughs> well, keep sponges nearby to wipe down the sweat. <laughs> yeah, we we have to be super professional this time. Yeah. Pretend like we know what we're oh, doing. Oh yeah, because because I'm always professional. That every, <laughs> oh, everyone yeah. knows this. To be fair, the format is ninety percent stolen from my brother and bro- my brother and me repurposed <laughs> to be about D and D. Welcome to podcast, my dude. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for having me, gentlemen. Yeah, absolutely. It's a pleasure, pleasure to have you. Uh, and we need your your special expertise because today we're talking about that most iconic of D and D monsters. We're talking about the Beholder today. <laughs> Good. Yeah. So a little bit of clarification. Beholders. There's a lot. I know. In the past, we when we did angels, we combined them all together into one mega episode. I think Beholders are a little bit. Um, I think it'll help the flow of the show if we do them one at a time. Yeah, especially with the three of us here, if if all three of us threw everything we knew about Beholders into one episode, this might take us all day. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah they, they are quintessential, and there is a lot of back lore about them, so yeah, it could go on for a while if we left it unleashed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I think for purposes of expediency, we're going to do standard Beholders first, and then uh, we might in the future... I haven't fully decided yet. We might do Death Tyrants and uh, Spectators in one, or we might separate those as well. But that'll be a problem for future us to deal with. Yeah. (laughs) In the meantime, regular-ass beholders. I didn't think we'd make it this far. (laughs) (laughs) Thought they would shut us down after episode three. Yeah, those wild, (laughs) those loose cannon boys over at Tooth and Nail. (laughs) Yeah, so Beholders, they come in a variety of styles. We're going to focus on the standard one for now. We'll find that Beholders are very, uh, how do I put this? They are appropriate for D&D in that, you know, Beholders as a mascot, D&D being a chance-based game, we'll find that Beholders kind of thrive on randomness mechanically and in their lore as well to some extent. You know, no two Beholder encounters run the same way, mm-hmm. like how, for example, a Basilisk would, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, well, part of it is just the fact of uh, it's one of those creatures where, like, because with a lot of the creatures, like dragons, mummies, that kind of thing, like, you you know about those growing up, right? Yeah. You know yeah. what a dragon is. You know what, like, even a Basilisk is. But then you start reading into Beholders, and you're like, wait, what? It does what? Yeah. And, and it, it does it that what? And it's just really interesting to have this, like, like, as far as I know, entirely unique to D&D, iconic monster that's so very interesting to me. Yeah. It's awesome. Yeah, it is. I I don't, at least at this point in the show, I don't do a lot of history of D&D monsters, but I had to do a little bit of digging, and this is a D&D original. This way back in first edition. Man. Yeah. OG. Yeah, yeah. The original, this is getting a little bit offhand, but uh, the original depiction of beholders was hilarious by the way oh my god (laughs) yeah i love him the little like weird cracky skinned tiny eyed it looks like a choose your own adventure monster it's awesome (laughs) yeah i'm kind of curious uh when was the first time you guys encountered beholders in media oh Mm, i was thinking about that earlier today and for a minute i thought it was futurama (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah uh but i think actually it was probably Baldur's gate dark alliance 2 yeah, I was I was gonna say for me it was probably Neverwinter Nights back in the day. Uh, pseudo D and D video games for the win. Yeah, 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 yeah. Back then, I thought they were I thought they were, had something to do with gorgons, like <laughs> Medusas. I'm, I mean, you're not far off. They're pretty. They're pretty. I mean, 
at least aesthetically, and they can both turn in, uh, creatures into stone. That's a fair assumption. Yeah, and we'll find that there is a lot of strange overlap in between how beholders are and how some of the other mythologically based creatures in D&D go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think my first one was either Futurama or maybe one of the early Final Fantasies had like an off-brand beholder. <laughs> oh yeah, I know exactly which one you're talking about. Yeah. I, I don't remember what it was called in that, but it was definitely like discount dollar store beholder. <laughs> yeah. yeah. A floating ball of eyes. Yeah. <laughs> Final Fantasy Monster.exe. <laughs> so yeah, I'm thinking let's get started. Yeah. All right, let's hop on it. In the lore, we learn that beholders come in a variety of styles. It seems like the picture, the standard beholder picture that we get is the same one. There's one that we get uh, at the very beginning of the section, and then one we get when we get to the monster stat block. And then there's also, of course, the beholder on the front of the monster. Yeah, on the cover. That one is definitely different. (laughs) Uh, The one that we get on the cover, which I didn't really think to note too much, is a lot spinier. Yeah, he's a spiky boy. Yeah. Whereas the one quintessential prototypical beholder that we get, although this beholder can never know that because it'll go to its head, (laughs) is this like, uh, I mean, you know, people who listen to the show know what a beholder looked like. It's a big fleshy ball with a big eye in the middle and then a mouth below the big eye and then what seemed to be 10 eye stalks that poke out of the sides and top of the beholder, kind of like hair. Tentacle eyes. Eye tentacles. Yeah. Yeah. If you can imagine a snail's eyes, that kind of thing. (laughs) But works. It's kind of funny looking at the past edition artworks because they're pretty uniform in the size of the eyes on the end of the stalk mm. until you get to fourth edition where it's just the eyes are huge on the end of the stalks. And that's kind of, I think, like what people latched onto for other depictions in media. Yeah, yeah. The progression of Beholder history is really interesting to me, particularly. So it it looks like a Medusa creature. If I had to guess, I would say that the Beholder is specifically meant to invoke those kinds of Greek mythology creatures in the same way that like a Medusa and a Cyclops have that really specific stop motion, Clash of the Titans, Ray Harryhausen kind of style. Mm -hmm. I think that the Beholder is specifically meant to be kind of a celebration of that kind of depiction of Greek mythology. Yeah, I can definitely see that. I, I, yeah, I love that it's essentially, it is kind of, it's what you would get if you introduced Lovecraft to more Greek mythology. Yeah, it, yeah. It, yeah, a little bit, yeah. It's got a very interesting mix of influences. Yeah, it does. And I wonder how much of that was intentional from the beginning. I don't, again, I didn't do a whole lot of D&D history exploration. If you would like, I have this picture saved up ready to post of all of the depictions of second edition beholders. That's That might be helpful. I might look at that in a second. I was talking more from like a lore perspective uh, oh, okay. to see like, oh, oh yeah, that definitely looks yep. way more aberration-y. Yep, I've, I've, I've seen that collection before and I, I just, it's just the gang. It's, it's, it's a bunch yeah. of very strange boys. It's a rowdy posse. Yep. I love the one on the left that definitely looks like a human was like <laughs> just destroyed, like turned into a beholder. It's still got the remnants of an ear. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ugh. Yeah. So that kind of suggests like, cause I imagine the first beholder was supposed to be more of a mythological creature. And then at some point they decided to make the turn into making 
the Beholder more aberrational and more Lovecraftian as we get it now. And uh, that turn is very interesting to me. And it seems as though, judging by the art here, that was a fairly early on turn if this is second edition. Mm-hmm. I was just going to say, it's, it's interesting because you can see even in second edition, they started thinking, okay, we've got Beholders. How many different flavors of Beholder can we ma- make? <laughs> like, can we have a Cool Ranch Beholder? Can we have a Spicy <laughs> Beholder? And it's like all these weird amalgamations of okay it's got a big eye and it's got some form of tentacles we'll work with that what if instead of tentacles it had anglerfish things yep (laughs) then when everyone's tired of it they'll bring back beholder classic and make millions (laughs) (laughs) with real sugar yeah (laughs) yeah so the the one that we get in the depiction for beholder classic uh in the monster manual It seems to, and we talked about this a little bit in the last couple episodes, it seems to be another example of the 5th edition art style converging towards this, like, uniform, badass, kind of quote-unquote epicness thing. Mm -hmm. So the one we get here, it's this purpley-turquoise coloration. It has what appears to be this really long scar across its forehead, and its lips are cleft with some of its teeth being knocked out. It looks like it's battled-weathered. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, it it has this real, like, come-at-me-bro kind of look. It it does the job. I personally prefer the earlier depictions. I like the the weird kind of creature that we get in, for example, this second edition kind of Beholder. Yeah, this is the this is the commercialized Beholder. This is the um, <laughs> this is the approved to be in any campaign Beholder. Yeah, absolutely. And we did a lot of talking about that when we did Basilisks. How there is kind of a generic coolness factor that a lot of the fifth edition art gets in order to be yeah. you know easily injectable into whatever campaign you might need which is good because you can have that standard and then just fuck with it as you do with any other you know monster or anything like that also i should have asked can i swear on this podcast oh it, absolutely <laughs> okay good because otherwise i'm i'm screwed how dare you this is a family show <laughs> <laughs> no have at it well shit um <laughs> But yeah, no, um, I, I think I think that's a good way to go, though, to be honest, because honestly, for people who have been playing D&D for a long time, we already have all those weird versions in our brain, or we've let our brain say, okay, that's what the book says, but this is what I'm doing. Yeah. Um, so, like, this is good for the people who are just getting into it to have, like, a baseline, but those who want to go beyond that already know that's in the, in the cards to just say, screw what the art says, I'm making my own. Yeah, yeah, I think that's fair for the, you know, D&D is very front and center about making it your own. Um, Mm -hmm. And as much as maybe earlier players tend to rely on the art that we get, the more experienced players are, you know, they they have free reign to do with it what they will. I was just speaking from like a personal perspective. I prefer the kind of funky 70s art style to this kind of, you know, cool style that we get now. It's got a little more heart in it. Yeah. (laughs) There's a lot more like fuck it you know yeah, with the old yeah, art style because like the new one is so cool yeah and so like let's put a bunch of money into this art whereas the old ones were like <laughs> jerry down the hall can draw yeah. let's have him make a beholder but put beaks on it you know yeah. you know my, my nephew he likes to draw in his spare time <laughs> we can get him to do it he's real good at drawing eyeballs <laughs> you can draw those eyeballs like a son of a bitch <laughs> Yeah, I think I think half of the problem that I'm having with it is, you know, some of these earlier depictions, they seem to have more character to it. I think that the the coolest thing, or at least the most 
you know, one of the reasons why I did this show was because I like to see the humanity in the monsters that we get. Mm. And I think the s- generic badass beholder that we get in the monster manual doesn't do a lot to convey the kind of sniveling xenophobe. The I think the coolest thing about a beholder for me is the fact that they are incredibly, like, you know, they're terrified of the world. They're consummate mm-hmm. cowards in a way. And I would have liked to see some of that, some of that paranoia in the monster manual art that we get. That's that's true because their whole thing is that they are constantly paranoid. They are constantly like afraid of what might end them. And in this, in in the art, it does kind of look like he's just saying, "Come at me, bro!" Like, yeah, I'll fuck <laughs> you up. He doesn't look paranoid. He looks mad. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a beholder who's winning, and I want to see a beholder that's losing, <laughs> or at least a beholder who's considered every possible scenario in which he might lose. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think they could have given him a hat. I think that would have been a great choice. I was just about to say, let a beholder hold a sword. Like... <laughs> oh god, now I have a, I have a new villain. He's, it's just a beholder who figured out how to hold swords. One of his eye stalks got like severed a little bit, so he's got like a prosthetic hand on the end of it, and it holds a sword. But not very well. Yeah, that'd be a cool dark sun kind of beholder. <laughs> yeah. kinda, you know, one who's been through rough times and just making do the best he can. <laughs> I do like this kind of idea for prosthesis, though, that no matter what you lose, you're replacing it with a sword. Lose an eye, <laughs> replace it with a sword. Sometimes you gotta headbutt a guy real good. Yeah. Just... <laughs> so, in terms of the lore that we get, the Beholder, as we said before, is known for this excessive xenophobia. Beholders, they, they loathe and dismiss virtually all other creatures, including other Beholders. They're known to be incredibly vain as well, expecting other creatures to kill them out of jealousy for, you know, how powerful and amazing they they believe themselves to be. Consequently, beholders, their smaller eyes are constantly on the lookout for enemies, and they only close the center eye when they sleep. The rest remain active at all times. It's kind of amazing due to the nature of their reproduction, which, you know, we're not covering Volo stuff right here, but it's, mm-hmm. I think, my favorite detail about beholders, uh, and it's that... Beholders, they accidentally dream other beholders into existence. <laughs> yep. As a, yeah, as a result of that, beholders, they manifest in a variety of ways, some having, you know, thick shells, some having spikes, as we see on the cover. Some of them have bony eye stalks instead of tentacle eye stalks. And uh, the book points out that due to this extreme xenophobia, beholders will often turn against each other for just the barest differences. Oh, yeah. Or the, like, um... Literally, the most common occurrence uh, for beholders being born is one beholder dreams of another beholder, it appears nearby, and then they immediately fight to the death because they're like, you're not me. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And then, uh, and I know we're not talking too much about uh, Volos, but I love the fact that there are rare cases where you get like an identical beholder, and then they just start a commune. They're yeah. just like, all right, you're me. I guess you're fine. <laughs> I'm pretty sure this is me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's pretty good. I uh I I think that's the best thing to come from the the aberration turn that that mm-hmm. we get in Beholders is this dreamscape Lovecraft kind of thing. Yeah. Well, and it gives you it gives you blanket permission as a DM to flavor the beholder however the hell you want. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
yeah, it makes it nice and easy. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, Beholders being the most popular kind of D&D monster, you're going to want a antagonist Beholder at some point that is your own, you know? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I have, I, that was one of the first, I'm currently working on a campaign setting right now and uh, writing it all down in World Anvil and stuff. Yeah. And literally one of the first things I did was, oh, I have this idea for a Beholder. I'll put him in this region. And he's just been sitting there and, like, everything builds around that. It's interesting how Beholders literally not only influence, like, okay, there's a Beholder in this region, but how that influences everything in a region surrounding a Beholder. Yeah, absolutely, because they're control freaks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, so, yes, as as we've seen before with the Banshee, you know, the best monsters that we get in D&D exemplify the worst aspects of the worst people that we meet in real life. <laughs> And, you know, I, I think that vanity is a pretty easy trope in monster creation, but I, I really do like that xenophobia spin to the Beholder's vanity, right? So, like, the Beholder thinks it is the greatest thing on the planet, so anything that's not itself it's afraid of. I think that's a, a clever way to spin that trope. Yeah, rather than rather than the typical vanity thing where it's just like, I'm better than everything else, so I'm mad at everything else and it has to die. <laughs> Instead, the beholder is like, I'm better than everything else. Everyone wants me to die. <laughs> yeah. And I, yeah. I do think that, not to get, you know, too deep on our D&D show, <laughs> but I do think that there is, you know, a kernel of arrogance in bigotry and xenophobia that we get in real life. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah no, and it's, it's, it's interesting because it's very... I, I love beholders because they are... I, I, I almost put them in a category that is essentially like... They are alien, crazy dragons. Like they, <laughs> they are like dragons, but from another world. If they were completely batshit insane, yeah. Um, and it, it just makes them a per- it makes them a very good villain because they're incredibly intelligent, but inherently insane. And you don't have to like do that balance of wait, why is this? If if a beholder were a person, you would question how the hell they managed to exist because yeah. there's no way. <laughs> They're this crazy and this xenophobic without, you know, ending up in a, in a puddle somewhere. Um, <laughs> whereas the Beholder, it's like, oh, it has a brain that literally calculates everything. That makes a bit more sense. Yeah, yeah. That did absolutely give me the mental image of, like, a Beholder half passed out with a bottle in its <laughs> tentacle, just in a puddle in the middle of, like, water deep. Xanathar's <laughs> seen better days. Yeah, Xanathar, but he really hit a brick wall, man. Spare eyeballs! <laughs> <laughs> Has anybody seen my goldfish? <laughs> yeah. So, spurred on by that arrogance, some beholders are known to found autocracies based on enslaving other creatures. Due to, you know, their obviously monstrous nature and their extreme paranoia, the empires that they build can can be very subtle and clandestine. So, you know, some beholders will create big sprawling empires, but a lot of beholders will hide their influence and employ hidden agents within a larger city. So, you know, most notably, we get Xanathar, who is the most famous example of that kind of beholder. Uh, something that I found cute in that special D&D way, these kinds of beholders, they're given a specific name. They're called Eye Tyrants, which is, uh, you know, I thought was like, oh, they got themselves a name, but it's actually apparently an early name for a kind of beholder that dates back to first edition. So there's, you know, a tradition to it. Yeah, I think it's didn't it start out as like an eye tyrant was like the boss beholder. It was like essentially a dire beholder or something like that. 
I, I don't have all the details. I saw a couple of different names. There was like Eye Tyrant, and then there were some Bloodborne ass names, like, you know, the, the spawn <laughs> of many eyes and that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, come to think of it, Beholders would fit pretty damn well in, in Bloodborne. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I was trying to look up uh, if Eye Tyrant was like something special, but apparently the internet has just wiped it clean. Yeah, it's one of those things lost to time now. It was too powerful knowledge. We're not allowed to know. <laughs> no Beholder Warlocks. <laughs> yeah. So, based on this paranoia, Beholders will often make their lairs in hidden or otherwise hard-to-reach or long-abandoned places. In a kind of neat detail, Beholders are known to carve out maze-like tunnels in their lairs using their own disintegration ray that they have. Mm-hmm. Based on what they get in the on, on what we get in the stat block, I'm imagining the unluckiest beholder in the world that's just constantly casting sleep on a wall somewhere. <laughs> oh I can't build a home. Come on. <laughs> God, now I'm just imagining like beholders that literally can't control any of their eyes. So, so it's like, all right, all right, I'm gonna put you to sleep. Oh shit! Oh, yeah. he's dead. Oh god. <laughs> Or like the grandma beholder that can't remember each of her eye stock children. <laughs> Which one of you is the sleep one? Oh no! Oh. <laughs> yeah, and I love that. I I, I love that. Spec- I think I think it says somewhere in there about the fact how like specifically when they build these like these cavernous systems and everything like that, they purposely make it vertical to fuck with anyone trying to get out. Yeah, so they absolutely. can just float up and down, and anyone else is screwed. Yeah. Like, yep, that sounds about right. Yeah, it's like traditional castle design, how they're meant to be labyrinthine in order to deter enemies. It's mm-hmm. uh, it's really cool. Cool, And, you know, the monster manual gives the fledgling DM a lot of tips to help them design their dungeons, and this is a very specific call to action in that form, you know. Take note, mm. dungeon designer, make your tunnels vertical as much as you can. I can't remember if it's from, like, an actual supplement or something, but I was... Uh... I was watching a story of a boss beholder encounter in a lair built by the beholder, and essentially, the adventurers would walk in, it would be a 150-foot drop, and then there would be one door into the next room, which is another spire that goes up 150 feet, which then has a passageway into another spire that goes down 150 feet, and it's just this, like, M shape. That's some Tomb of Horror shit, man. (laughs) They have to figure out how to descend and ascend 150 feet like nine times. Yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, the beholder can just kind of go through the walls, yeah. just kind of meeting it halfway. Yeah. I was just going to say, I love that that design specifically, it, depending on the party composition, that can either be extremely easy to deal with or a fucking nightmare. It's just uh. impossible. <laughs> it's like, all right, we've got a bard with Featherfall, and okay, we've got Levitate, this will be fine, or... Oh god, we're all martial classes, the fuck are we gonna do? <laughs> I guess let's make ten athletics checks and hope for the best. <laughs> yeah, well there's an, uh, an, uh, a utilitarian value for that, because as soon as you see all these high vertical tunnels, you're immediately teaching the party that they're gonna have to deal with sharp inclines, and, uh, you know, you're just training them on the the biggest, the hardest part of fighting a beholder early on throughout the du- the dungeon. Yeah, managing space. Yeah. Indeed. Yeah. Moreover, the book gives the handy-dandy tip that beholders often litter their rooms, their chambers, with battle trophies and petrified enemies. 
similarly to basilisks and how we said with basilisks, you're gonna wanna always show off the worst thing a monster can do before you show the monster. You know, you create mm -hmm. tension that way. And petrified enemies are always a good indicator of that. Yeah, I've I've actually pulled that before. It was very fun in totally convincing the party they were about to go up against a simple Medusa. Because um, mm -hmm. there were all these <laughs> statues around. They're like, oh, we're going to be fighting a Medusa or a Basilisk. It's like, nope, nope, you're, you're not going to have it that easy. <laughs> you wish it was one of those things. <laughs> you're in Beholder Town, baby. <laughs> <laughs> Beholder Town, population five, four, three, two. <laughs> And then the rogue leaves. <laughs> There's uh, a little detail that we get that says that beholders guard their stuff fiercely because they judge their own worth on their possessions. And like, God damn it, Monster Manual, I'm really trying hard not to make the Trump comparison, but you just won't let it go. <laughs> That's what he's hiding under the toupee. It's a bunch of eye stalks. <laughs> yeah, so uh... yeah. Yeah, again, the the best monsters show off real world monsters. Uh and, <laughs> yep. and it's there it's nice. I think, you know, the next time I employ a beholder, I'll use a lot of this kind of the sadness of the beholder. These this like <laughs> see if I can bring out some pathos on how beholders are, you know, they kind of live trash lives. They live internet <laughs> men lives. <laughs> just a uh, just a big boss beholder neckbeard. Yeah. Oh my god. Oh, yes. no. I now I want to make it a goal to make the most pathetic beholder possible. I think I think there's a great way to spin that to make like that Dark Souls anticlimax kind of way to just give mm -hmm. you a really sad boss at the end. <laughs> I think I think that could work out really well. The real boss was the economic hardships we found along the way. <laughs> when there was only one set of deficit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I think that there is some, some intrigue in figuring out the difference between original beholders and current day aberration beholders. And again, I, I would like to see, you know, who was the August Durleth so to speak, of the Lovecraftification of Beholders. Oh, yeah. That... Yeah, I would like to see who is responsible for that kind of, that that shift that we get, because I think it's really cool. Yeah, well, because there was a lot of shift, especially, I mean, we all know the shift that happened with uh, 3 and 3.5. Like, there Absolutely. was a lot of stuff that, at least thematically, got, like, changed up. Um, but yeah, I'd be very interested in, that, that'd be another cool, cool thing to be able to talk to folks about is like talk to people who designed that and like how they came to those decisions. Cause that'd be awesome. Yeah, that would be awesome. Let's get popular so we can do that. Yep. All right. We're starting <laughs> yeah, we... a third podcast together. <laughs> it's Joe, Travis and Orion trying their best to get people who designed the old editions <laughs> of the game. <laughs> the wimpiest soapbox. Yep. <laughs> I think that about covers most of the fluff, but the mechanics is where it's at with this guy. It's yeah. one of the most interesting monsters to run. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's also one of the <laughs> one of the most self-explanatory, I think. If you'd like if somebody who knows basically nothing about Dungeons and Dragons 
if you tell it what each of these rays are called, I think they'll just get it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I think the Beholder has like a lot of good going for it in terms of being complex, but still somehow simple. Yeah, it's yeah. very strange. You can kind of set and forget of Beholder. You don't have to make a big crazy encounter for it to necessarily work. Oh, yeah. And it's kind of comparing it again to I, I like because I always in my mind, I compare them to dragons because you start fighting them around the same level. They're, you know, similar uh, veins of like big, scary, classic D&D monster. Yeah. But for me, the Beholder's perfect because it gets rid of that problem what dragons have sometimes. Where it's just like, okay, there's this big flying bag of hit points that occasionally deals out ridiculous amount of elemental damage, but there's not really anything else to it. Yeah. At least in a, a lot of 5e design. Whereas the Beholders, you're like, alright, I got ten different things that could happen to you on any given turn, and all I gotta do is roll a dice and see which one it is. This is a very interesting monster. It is. Yeah, there's a lot of monsters in 5th edition, even dragons, where you're like, all right, but how do I make this more interesting? Like, do I give it spell casting where it can cast spells as a dragon? But the Beholder, if you ever look at this stat block and you're like, what do I add to this Beholder? You have a problem. I have like, a problem. I've done that many times. Oh, my God. I, I can't imagine, like, keeping track of anything I added to a Beholder. I would just, it would be lost. Yeah, I think the idea is that they're so modular that, you as the DM, <laughs> you can just swap out effects as you want, whatever fits your flavor. Uh, oh, yeah. And I, I think that that is a a boon that the Beholder gives you as a DM is that they're, you know, and it, the fact that it's written in the lore as Beholders being so variable. Oh, yeah. And, well, and in various editions, there's so many different, like, there's versions of the Beholder or Beholderkin where it's like, all right, it's a Beholder, but all of its eye stocks just shoot flames or... Yeah, you know, oh, yeah, it's the a, eye of fire. I know that guy. Yeah, but it's beholder or the the death kiss, where it's like it just sucks blood. It's like there's so many beholder kin that do different things. You could easily swap out any one of those effects for a standard beholder. Yeah, yeah, make make an arcane affected beholder who's basically a walking wand of wonder. Yeah. <laughs> oh God, this beholder just keeps stink clouding me. <laughs> the shittiest. Oddly beholder. enough, one of the eye stock. Oddly enough, three of the eye stocks just do prestidigitation. I don't know why. <laughs> and this one, this one just does the flower effect of Wand of Wonder. That's it. I know I did it as a joke a little while ago, but seriously, let's make Grandma Beholder a thing. Yeah, <laughs> we absolutely. That does sound fun. Just one giant monocle spectacle. Yeah. It's, it's like only the useless effects, like slow, fairy fire, stinking cloud. Actually, now I want, I want to create a Beholder that has uh, um, astigmatism. <laughs> and so he has to have one specific gnome like slave that is just there to make eyeglasses specifically for a beholder. <laughs> That's pretty good. That's pretty good. We're very serious about these. Yeah. Yeah, I mean. Yeah. What's more serious than a beholder that shoots out a cloud of 600 oversized butterflies? <laughs> yeah. So the beholder that we get in terms of its mechanics, it is a uh, I, there isn't it's a legendary creature. Which is, you know, not to get all destiny about it, but that's like a, a high tier monster. It's mm -hmm. a boss fight. Yeah. Consequently, it gets a host of lair actions. And we saw this a little bit with Aboliths. In this particular case, the lair actions are significant enough to up the challenge rating of the monster when it's in its lair. So in this case, the Beholder's usual challenge rating is 13. It goes up to 14 when it's inside its lair. So... To enumerate these layer actions, on initiative count 20, the Beholder can do one of these three aberration-y-ass things. First, 
it can make a 50-foot square area within 120 feet of itself become slimy and make that area, uh, it, the area is considered difficult terrain until the next initiative count 20. I was, when I first read this, I was a little bit apprehensive of this. So, Joe, I apologize in advance. I am often concerned. <laughs> he is very concerned about monsters. So, you know, I'm going to whip out one of my patented Orion concerns. If the idea is that a fight with a beholder is kind of like a keep away fight where you're trying to chase down this thing as it's, you know, shoot and sleep and petrify at you. Mm. I was worried that an excessive difficult terrain would be it would make the encounter frustrating because, you know, under conditions of difficult terrain, most characters probably are only pushing 15 movement speed. And we'll see in a second, the beholder has a 20 foot fly speed. So it would be just enough for the beholder to constantly stay out of reach of the party in such a way that it would be frustrating. Yeah, I feel like that would depend very much upon the group you're running it for. Um, yes. Because there are certain groups where I throw that at them and be amazed at all the clever things they do to negate that, like um, certain spells that would negate the the uh, lack of movement or using more ranged or trying to stop the boulders movement, stuff like that. And then I've had groups that would just try and slog forward at 15 feet around until they die. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it depends really on what you think your party is going to be able to handle with that and how creative they're going to be with their solutions. Yes, and that we find is usually the case with D&D monsters. And in reality, this particular layer action isn't such a big deal because as we, you know, due to a stipulation that we get at the end of the block, the Beholder can only take this layer action once every two or three rounds because it, it can't reuse layer actions until they've all been used and you can't use the same one twice in a row. Mm -hmm. So... I actually turned around on this. I see it more as like a tactical retreat kind of thing. So if the fighter happens to get too close, the beholder can do this to buy it some more time to float away because, you know, once the frontline fighters get in, the beholder doesn't have a lot of HP. The fight is pretty much done once it gets, you know, once the party reaches it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, like the the fighter is climbing up the wall at already half movement and the beholder's just like, uh, the wall is slimy now. Have fun with your eight movement speed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it's it's also interesting because, like you said, um, they don't have... I mean, they have a significant amount of hit points. They have 180 hit points. But for a boss fight, at in theory, level probably at least nine, if that's a single creature that they're fighting, that's a short fight to begin with. Yeah. yeah. Like when you're, three turns, when, maybe. When you're running a beholder, you almost, or at least in my experience, whenever I run a beholder, you almost always have minions. A beholder would never be caught dead without minions in that fight. Yeah. Yeah. And for the purposes of the show, we usually provide encounters with the monster in a vacuum. But, mm. you know, uh, absolutely, within the narrative, the beholder is most likely going to have friends. Well, well friends <laughs> is, a, is, a, is a strong term. Yeah. I use the term loosely. <laughs> acquaintances at best <laughs> yeah and uh so when i take notes i have the little uh you know stats by challenge rating table that we get in the dm guide up this the hp that it has is several deviations away from what it would be it's it's a lot below the average hp that mm. a monster according to wizard of the coast should have for that challenge rating oh yeah 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 and it's probably that way because like, if a Beholder gets the drop on you, potentially three of your party members are now out of commission for the whole fight. Yeah, <laughs> and it, that is a good point, is that, like, it, that's part of what makes Beholders uh, actually pretty tricky to run, in addition to being fun and 
somewhat straightforward is that give it depending on the luck of the draw it can be a straight up tpk it can be a straight up cakewalk it it's hard it's hard to manage the difficulty level of beholders it can go yeah. either way yeah and i think you know this is getting into kind of end thoughts a little bit but i think that is my major orion concern with beholders is this randomness it's hard to get a gauge on it's hard to design around properly you know when you're yeah, when you're really building an encounter like, it, it can kind of boil down to the uh thing we say a lot here on this show and in our friendship which is if you accidentally disintegrate someone you don't think should be disintegrated right now it maybe it was a different wraith that you rolled yep. yeah no yep. absolutely <laughs> travis i don't know how you feel joe i know you talk to a lot of dms so maybe <laughs> you know your your horizons are broad so who knows oh. what your thoughts are on this but Travis and I are big proponents of fucking lying as DM. <laughs> I I am a bi- I am a big proponent of it in ninety nine point nine percent of the scenarios. I, <laughs> I I think I honestly think uh, the only exception is you should never cheat or you should never lie in order to fuck the players. You should only Absolutely. lie to yeah. help them. You should Absolutely. only lie oh, to yeah. help them. Yeah. Rule number one: be a fan of your party. Rule number two: you know, don't one shot your wizard with the disintegration ray. <laughs> or you know maybe do but like at least have them have a, a, a way to get them back yeah do it as long as you know somebody can cast like true resurrection immediately yeah, exactly <laughs> yeah yes so this next layer action that we get is a little bit scarier walls within 120 feet of the beholder sprout grasping appendages until initiative count 20 on the round after next so, this is, I think, my favorite layer action in yeah. like the game. It's really cool, As- especially because it just says appendages. It yeah, yeah you have no idea, else. man. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, it's uh, it's it's not a fun time. It's no. not great to imagine. No. It makes me think of the uh, bookcases from Dark Souls Three. Exactly, that's what yep. I was thinking of as well. I was also thinking of a dick beholder, but I think I'm gonna edit that out. That that too. That that was my immediate thought, and I have no shame. Don't you dare edit that out. That one's in. All right, so All we right. got granny beholder, dick beholder. They're 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 dire enemies. Those two. <laughs> they run rival guilds in the same town. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, so each creature of the Beholder's Choice that starts its turn within 10 feet of one of these walls has to succeed on a comparatively low DC 15 deck save or end up grappled. And then in order to break free, they have to make a DC 15 acrobatics or athletics check. So, you know, on the assumption that this is a keep away fight, we'll soon find that for the most part, the magic that a party has would typically trivialize a keep away fight that otherwise mm-hmm. might not be accessible, right? So the wizard can cast fly or, you know, dimension or any number of things. However, we'll soon find that a lot of the magic that the party would typically have may not be accessible. I was initially wondering if, like, in the likely scenario that a party will just have to flat out climb a wall in order to get a beholder, the fight might just stop dead for a couple of rounds as a result yeah. of this. Well, there is one spell, and it depends on what level they're fighting the beholder at, but it's in the range. It's a little bit on the higher range. But mm. if they have access to freedom of movement, that can be a huge game changer for beholder fight. Mm. Um, oh, yeah. All of a sudden, a lot of their shit's trivialized. Yeah, Paralyze, I think, is gone. Like, mm-hmm. uh, all does, their, does all their slow have actions. effects still? 
Uh, you can't reduce their speed. Uh, can't, yeah, they get out of grapples uh, with five feet of movement automatically. So that's like, yeah, a lot of their yeah. stuff is neutralized by freedom of movement. Yes. And then the being grappled thing isn't like a huge bane for like a wizard because you can misty step out of being grappled. Mm-hmm. But if you cast it on your barbarian, like that's that's, yeah. that's where that's where freedom of movement shines. I've never had freedom of movement be great on, you know, casting it on a wizard, but you want to cast it on your allies. So you're like, OK, I want you to be able to move wherever you want to move. Exactly, and I think that's the first order strategy for a party that is fighting a Beholder. The problem comes in when the Beholder does its special eye thing that we'll get to in a little bit, where, you know, it does anti-magic on a pretty wide radius out out on everyone. And I'm just, you know, whipping out another Orion concern that a, a party that is magically depressed in this way being also stuck on a wall somewhere... I don't know. I I don't like the idea of having a couple of rounds of just we try to break out of a wall. Yeah. Or well, and it's the fact of because the the eye ray uh, replicates. Um, it replicates an eighth level spell. It's it's uh, the anti magic field is 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 an eighth level spell that can do at will. Yes. In a yeah. in a cone. Yes. It is kind of batshit insane because it also it doesn't just. It doesn't just get rid of magical ongoing spells or anything like that. It's not just a spell. It also renders magical items useless. Yeah. Which, um, yeah, is terrifying. Yeah. It's funny that you say that it it, uh, it is making an 8th level spell because, like, if you were to balance this eye field into a spell, it would be, like, 11th level <laughs> because anti-magic field is only a 10-foot radius. Yeah. Yep. This is a 150-foot cone. Yeah. Like. Yep. And this well, is god magic. <laughs> especially when your horrified party member drowns a potion to realize that it was a magical potion, it doesn't work anymore. <laughs> oh, fuck. I didn't even think of that. Oh, man. Oh, yeah. We, I've run into that before. It's like, sorry, you just wasted a supreme healing potion and you didn't oh, heal anything. Oh, shit. Oh, no. <laughs> That's pretty rough. There's Joe coming in with the shit we didn't even think about. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. yeah. It's a, yeah. that that is the single most terrifying aspect of a beholder is the anti magic because <laughs> even if it didn't have its eye stalks, it can still bite you pretty hard. Like it's got a pretty massive mouth, but that anti magic can just completely decimate a party. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely one of, if not the most dangerous thing about a beholder. Yeah. So last of the layer actions, the beholder does a beholder thing. It summons an eye that opens up on a solid surface within sixty feet of itself. It shoots out one of the Beholder's random eye rays, then it poofs out. You know, the Beholder more or less does one thing really well, and that's shoot eye rays. So this feels like another means of padding out the Beholder's quirk, the Beholder's gimmick. So, like, if the Beholder it hasn't done damage in a round or two, this is another way to make sure that the Beholder is actually damaging the party as opposed to just casting sleep on the same guy every yeah. round. Man, like that first uh, layer action is like pretty aberration-y, I guess. But like there's a lot of natural monsters that can make things slimy. That's whatever. Yeah. But shit, dude, grasping appendages bouncing out of walls <laughs> and like the the wall opening an eye socket that wasn't there before to shoot lasers at you. That's the most fucking. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's Lovecrafty as shit. And actually, um, as part of it having, you know, it being a big old mo- boss monster. It has regional effects as well, which we also saw with Aboliths, and regional effects, as a quick reminder, are those, like, 
just fun little dungeon flavor things that you as the DM can employ to make your dungeon and your end boss link together a little bit more obviously. Yeah. So, you know, uh, firstly, creatures within a mile of the lair sometimes feel like they're being watched when they aren't. Again, these things are mostly narrative than functional. The other and the more interesting one is that when the beholder is sleeping, it accidentally causes minor warps in reality out to a mile around its lair. And these warps, I think, the beholder being a Lovecraft-ass monster... I think these warps are there to provide some of that madness style effect thing. So like the eternal darkness, call it Cthulhu kind of style madness effects, adding yeah. some justification to the beholder being an aberration. So like in these warps, walls can change subtly or strange trinkets can suddenly appear or, you know, the walls can start using slime. Just Cthulhu things. Just Cthulhu. Hashtag just Cthulhu things. Some of my favorite hallucinations, like when you walk past mirrors, the reflection lags by a second. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's a good way to tell a party, like, if they're looking for a beholder, like, it's a good way to show them where they might be or, yeah. you know, set up that 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 foreshadowing uh, in a town or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. They're great fun. We had a lot of fun. And they also, um, as we talked with Abolis back in the day, these regional effects also help provide a an adventure hook for getting you into that dungeon. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when Farmer Steve comes down and is like, my walls using slime, that <laughs> that provides the party with a, a little bit of guidance towards storming what will turn out to be a beholder dungeon. Yep. To be fair, there have been parties I've had before where that would no longer work because I've had the farmer say, oh, my, my walls are covered in slime. And it turns out that it was just like some weird sort of mold that he had in his farm, but he was paranoid <laughs> about it. Have you read The Color oh, of Space, it? Joe? <laughs> no. Oh, there. It's a Lovecraft story that's about farmers that are, oh. you know, they get infected by an alien thing. And I was like, I was going to make a Color Out of Space joke. Oh, well. <laughs> Alas, a lack of Don't day. worry. You can make it for everyone else that's not us, because I haven't read it either. <laughs> oh. And that would be like the M. Night Shyamalan version of The Color Out of Space, where like, <laughs> oh god, I, I'm being attacked by an alien <laughs> form, and it's just mold. <laughs> that's some shit. Yeah. But the mold was ghost the whole time. Yeah. Yep. It was, it was ghost mold. It's terrible to get out of basements. <laughs> yeah. Have to hire a, uh, a... Shit, I was going to make a The joke, lamest Ghostbuster. I was gonna make I was gonna make a joke about having to hire an exterminator and a and a exorcist, but I remembered an exterminator does animals, and I have no idea what the hell does mold. So that joke <laughs> no. went nowhere. It's fine. I'll get it in in post. <laughs> Cue it being left in, and I look like a fool. <laughs> Three that's, minutes that's really of silence we... is added in afterwards. <laughs> that's really why we invited you on here, Joe, to take you down a peg. I mean, fair. I needed it. I needed at least. A couple. Welcome to the shit on Joe Collins podcast. <laughs> I'm down for this. It's a weekly surprise. Roast. It's a roast. Yeah. <laughs> no, we wouldn't do that to you, Joe. I'm sure. Um, but yeah, no, I. With the with the regional effects, yeah, I, I as much as I love the regional effects for dragons, they're very obvious. They yes. are very okay. This place used to be a temperate area, but now there's a, a blizzard constantly. There's probably a white dragon. Where with boulders, it could point towards a myriad of different things. Like people yeah. could think that they're possessed or being haunted or stuff like that. 
Yeah. And even if you narrow it down to an effect, you know, there are a thousand weird Lovecraft monsters in D&D. It doesn't necessarily have to be a beholder. So there's yeah. still some minor element of surprise that can be steadily unveiled as you progress farther and farther down the dungeon. So in the beholder's stat block, it is a category size large aberration with a lawful evil alignment. No surprises there. The Beholder has a challenge rating of 13. Again, it gets a boost to 14 when it's in its lair. And it has an average for its challenge rating armor class of 18 and a way below average HP of 180. So again, my two cents is that the challenge is getting to the Beholder and not necessarily hitting it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and well, that yeah, because it doesn't even have any resistances. It's not, it's no. not resistant to anything. So anything you hit it with, yeah, that's what? Like a good, maybe that's that's that could easily be done in a round. That yeah, yeah. Depending on how much round. of the party is doing dealing damage, that could be done in like a round or two. Yeah. Well, and it depends on how many resources they have left. Because you got one paladin with enough smites, uh, smite <laughs> slots left. That is fucking done. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And so you know, feeding into this keep away kind of mechanic, the beholder it doesn't have legs. It instead magically flies with a slow hovering fly speed of about 20 feet. So it's not terribly fast either. The idea is that the Beholder, to my mind, is smart enough to be playing the long game, kind of maneuvering mm-hmm. itself throughout the fight rather than just sitting at on its throne, shooting death beams at the party. Oh, yeah. And well, that's part of the thing is like half of running this monster is the setup because... It's it's written in slower. I don't know if it's been specified in the monster manual, but I know it is in like volos and stuff. Beholders literally plan for every scenario, no matter yeah. how men, how outlandish, no matter how crazy. You can teleport into their lair with an angel at your back <laughs> and like three earth elemental summoned and a ring that like shoots lightning out of everyone in a fifty foot radius, <laughs> and it will have planned for that exact scenario. It has plans upon plans upon plans. And so if you ever have a party come against a beholder and it's just a beholder and it's just, you know, sitting there, that's not a beholder. You haven't run a beholder counter. You've run something that has the stats of a beholder, but just sat there and got killed very easily. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. It reminds me of um, in the foreword to Curse of Strahd that it's uh, Tracy or Margaret Hickman, I can't remember. They're, they were talking about how prior to them making Ravenloft, they were running a dungeon and it was like, they were fighting a vampire, but it didn't feel like a vampire. It felt like Monster 93 in Room 87B. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I, I think D&D has come a long way in giving the DM tools to ascribe character and mm. intelligent motivation to its monsters. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But at the same time, like for the early DM or the DM who's short on time, I think that beholders are uh, compartmentalized enough that you could kind of just throw it in a 50 by 50 room and be fine. Mm-hmm. Oh, or yeah. And well, that's not like that's a 50 by 50 room, but like 100 by 100 room. And it would be a decent encounter. Or, well, there's the fact of the matter. I mean, we've talked about the fact of it's basically a boss creature. But if you're using a high enough level party, it can just be a decent, interesting encounter. Like if you're, mm-hmm. if you're throwing them up against a, a bunch of level like 13 level um uh adventurers it's just an interesting enemy now it's not necessarily villain and it's written in that i mean that can be a thing there are beholders who aren't like mastermind like controlling a city there are just some who want to live out their days in a tunnel paranoid so you can just run across those yeah 
Yeah. You know, I, I originally thought its intelligence score would be higher. It's only 17, but I yeah. I think I kind of like it how it is, right? So it it means that beholders are smart enough to think they know everything, but dumb enough not to know better, you know? Mm-hmm. So or, I think yeah, that kind of that, fits. It's the arrogance. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was actually really yeah. surprised to find that it has 18 constitution, you know? Oh, yeah. No, yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting. It's a very interesting stat block. Yeah. Especially because, like... It, it, it has 18 constitution, which generally with monster stat blocks would mean that it has like a higher HP than average, mm. but it's lower. Yeah. I thought maybe it might be there to provide some representation for its large size. Yeah. Cause they're, they're like 18 or not 18. They're like eight feet across yeah. a beholder statistically. Yeah. Well, so, what's yeah, also, I guess so. What's also interesting is, I mean, it's got a plus to everything but strength, uh, but just the fact that its con is its highest it because i think the way i would play it as a dm is it's got more intelligence than 17 it's got mm. that intelligence it's just using 17 for this fight because <laughs> mm. it is it is constantly thinking of other things it's the epitome of monster add oh sure uh, <laughs> because their brain is constantly ra- racing about five moves ahead they can't use all of their intelligence in one go yeah that's a cool read of that i like that they're too busy thinking about the angel that will absolutely be busting through the yes. roof next turn. Absolutely. <laughs> so, Beholders, they get bonuses to all of their mental saves. I like to think it's because they're so self-assured. Mm. As one would think, it being a creature comprised mainly of eyes, it has a very high plus 12 to its perception, and it has a passive perception of 22. That means that, you know, the rogues and the stealth-centric bards can still get by just fine. But unless y'all got Pass Without Trace, I don't think it'll work out for the Cleric. Mm-hmm. And, well, it's, it's interesting because, for me, these... Uh, more than anything, I think these bonuses, specifically the saves, are m- based in mechanics rather than flavor. Because the whole thing is, if you could get off a couple of uh, spells that have those saves, you could completely, you know... Yeah, absolutely. Fuck over Beholder with one, uh, like, hold monster or one, yeah. you know... So there, there's a variety of spells that's I think meant to protect against. Yes, yes, there, there is definitely utilitarian value to its saving throws as well, as just being flippant, I guess. Oh yeah, no, no, <laughs> I, I still like thinking about this stuff, but I think I think it's interesting because it's almost as if they chose to do that rather than a legendary save, even though it's got legendary legendary actions. Yeah, that is um, very interesting. I didn't consider that until just now. I think, yeah, I think it might be again. Because of its anti-magic field and because half of the the goal is to just get to the Beholder, I think they were fine with not making it so defensively capable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think if you gave it, like, even one legendary resistance, it would probably up the challenge rating. Like, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, and it's it's there are certain ways you can run the Beholder that, like, are... Because I, ha- I once had a DM and I disagreed with how he ruled it. Um, he ran the Beholder in that the eye stocks magic still worked in the anti-magic field nope and that instantly made it okay no this isn't this isn't a cr13 anymore yeah Um, that is that's a problem so yeah that is that is important to note to new dms the eye stocks do not work in the anti-magic field yes please yes he can shoot to the sides and behind him (laughs) yes or he can suck it up and turn off his eye for a round and let us live Yeah. yeah yeah yes that is true uh, it hovers, so it can't 
be proned, but that's its only condition resistance or its con- its only condition immunity. Mm-hmm. One thing that does suck about it having a hover thing, though, is that if you grapple it to reduce its speed to zero, that does not bring it to the ground. No. Yeah. no. But, you know, maybe if, like, I don't know, if you... Uh, all I can think of is Critical Role, where Keyleth does the Earth Elemental Slam into the Beholder. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'd rule that. Yeah, there's always there's always room for, for finagle and for flavor, but... Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It has a, a dark vision. Whoop-de-fucking-do. This one is kind of special <laughs> because it has a, a pretty sizable dark vision of 120 feet, which also makes sense, it being an eye creature. Let it see all at once. I'm actually an eye creature in the deep. Yeah, I'm. I'm kind of surprised that they never got true sight in any of the beholders yeah. that I've seen. Yeah, or at least like a an eye stock that gives true sight or something like. Or yeah, something, something to that like effect. That. Yeah. Yep. Especially considering, especially considering how um, prevalent dark vision is in Five E, where uh, literally it's more odd for something not to be able to see in the dark. Yeah. Than, yeah. than mm. being able to see. Yeah. It speaks deep speech, it speaks undercommon, which are the languages of the Underdark where beholders traditionally nest. Uh, obviously, change the language to fit your setting or your your scenario. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Probably the least, like... The, the I like that they include languages in, in Monster Manual, but it's probably the most ignored thing of, yeah. of anything in the Monster Manual. Yeah. Sometimes it leads to some interesting things, so, like... I, I thought it was cool that Bahirs could speak Draconic uh, because mm, it's a creature true. that you you wouldn't typically expect it to speak. And I like the idea of it, you know. It's that, like, uh, what am I thinking of? L- like the beginning of The Thing where the guys are yeah. speaking Norwegian. Uh, and if yeah. you know Norwegian, it kind of gives you a little bit of extra advantage as a movie, as the audience. So I like mm. the idea of something screaming dr- Draconic at the players. And the or the at the characters and the characters who know Draconic get a little bit extra gravy to the encounter. Well, and I I know it's off top, but I do like that about the Behir because it's it's that thing where if you're throwing against new players, they have no reason to believe it's like intelligent or sentient. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's yeah. the coolest and thing then, to me. And then the one Dragonborn's like, oh shit, he just told me something very rude about my mother. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's it's less interesting in the case of the Beholder where you expect it to be intelligent enough to speak, but mm. I I think that. Every now and again, you get a surprise from, oh, this creature knows a language. That's interesting. Yeah. But yeah, for the most part. Beholder just took common in high school and it knows under common. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But for the most part, I agree with you. Uh, Feel free to ignore the the language thing or change it as you need. Beholders make for (laughs) strange combatants. Uh, yeah, a large chunk of this little note section we already talked about because the anti-magic cone, you just can't get away from it when talking about... Yeah, yeah. I want to, like, <laughs> camp out on it for a little bit longer just because it is so iconic and central to how a Beholder encounter goes. Basically, what happens yeah. is the central eye of the Beholder emits a huge 150-foot cone of anti-magic, a la the spell, which suppresses all magical effects within the zone. Uh, At the beginning of the turn, the Beholder decides whether or not the cone is on and what direction the cone is facing. So, like I've said a couple of times, I read this as a keep-away fight, a Beholder encounter, and there are a lot of utility spells like Fly and Dimension Door, Misty Step, all those things that can help circumvent the challenge in a keep-away fight. So the idea is like, you know, the wizard casts Fly on the Paladin, the Beholder notices this and then drops the Paladin while he's 60 feet in the air, That, that sort of thing. It gives the DM some tactical choice, right? So the Mm -hmm. Beholder, it only has this cone of anti-magic, 
And as we've said before, its eye stalks are also suppressed by the cone. So the you as the DM are given kind of a neat tactical choice that you don't often get as DM, where you can decide, you know, do I keep the cone centered on the fighter that has flycast on him? Do I keep it centered on the sorcerer in the back lines to keep him from disintegrating me? Or do I just turn it off completely for my eye rays to shoot wherever I want them to? Oh, yeah. And I think that's part of what makes Beholder so fun to run is because as a DM, you always get to throw big, dangerous things at the party. Like, yeah. you get to throw giants, everything like that. But how it really is a special boss moment, and it feels awesome to run a creature who is A, intelligent. Yes. B, super intelligent, especially, <laughs> more intelligent than you are. And C, has a lot of options. Because it really allows you to play tactician, which you generally, as a DM... I mean, you're playing tactics in terms of, all right, this knoll's going to attack from there, and, like, this bugbear's going to hit him real hard. Yeah, yeah, it's it's nice to finally have a tactical monster. Yeah. At a lower level than a lich. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think it's super elegant as well, because I think most monsters, the tactical choice that you get is what spell do I, you know? What spell mm-hmm. do I cast? Uh, I think that having something ingrained into the stat block as a trait is a lot more... You know, I don't have time to look up what the fuck Phantasmal Killer does in the middle of a fight. <laughs> <laughs> right? So, like, I like... Yep. I, I think it's super elegant and effective that the Beholder has a trait that allows the DM to make these tactical decisions without, you know, distracting the DM. In addition to, I mean, the fact that the eye stocks are chosen at random. So it's not just you're like tactically thinking about what you're doing next. It's also thinking, okay, what will it do if it's these three rays this next round or these three rays, that kind of thing. Yeah. And that's, that's kind of interesting that you bring it up because it forces the DM to plot (laughs) for every contingency in the same way that a beholder would. Yeah, (laughs) that's a very good point. Lastly, I think that the the width of the cone, the huge range that you get, is kind of neat in that... So, in, in my imaginary scenario of a Beholder encounter, the party is starting on the other side of the room, pretty far away from the Beholder, so that the Beholder can play Keep Away. As kind of a happy accident of it being a cone, the Beholder is less able to keep the anti-magic field on you the closer you get to it. So it kind of lends itself to a nice difficulty arc for the encounter, where the closer mm-hmm. you get the less control the Beholder has over you, but the more eye rays it's able to shoot at you. Yeah, that is, that is a good point. And it's it's fun to... to I, I, yeah, I hadn't thought about that because it's a very much a risk and reward. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 a very much like... The, the icon is like, all right, guys, we need to try to flank this thing. And then as soon as you get into the flank, it's like, shit, it's shooting us with eye stalks. <laughs> what, do we want to be in the cone or what? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's, well, it's interesting because um, it's such a unique, that, that's really what's interesting about the Beholders. It's unique. It is very different from pretty much any monster other than the other Beholders um, yeah. in the monster manual. Um, and it inherently makes a an impact on the world. It's it like, for instance, like in one of the campaigns I ran, um, the characters walked into this big, important meeting room in the middle of a kingdom Um and there's this really important tense peace talk going on and they see out of the corner of their eye on the wall behind them is like this giant like trophy thing with just this giant eye 
in implanted in the wall and they're like what the hell is that and it's like oh yeah we killed the beholder and took its eyes so we could have an anti-magic field for this this meeting place <laughs> that's and, pretty cool yeah yeah and it's like the beholder just brings out all these not only just mechanical benefits but think it leads you to think about other things that it does other things that this strangely unique creature brings to the world yeah yeah real quick the beholder in terms of its attacks <laughs> it can do two things one of those things is really cool. The other one is not very cool. Real quick, <laughs> yeah. the Beholder gets a pretty shitty bite attack. With it, it only has a plus five to hit, which is really low for a creature of its CR. And it only does like 14 damage, which is pretty abysmal for its challenge rating. The idea is, you know, clearly this is like a latch, a last ditch attack if something gets right up on it. I think, and I hinted at this a little bit, I think if I was DM, this would be the moment where I, in terms of a narrative push, show how pathetic and fearful a beholder is mm -hmm. right so you finally get up to it and it, all it can do I, I it mechanically there's no reason for it to stop shooting eye rays at you but i like the idea of as a last ditch effort you know overcome by paranoia in just kind of a crazy pathetic rage tries to take a bite out of you as one of the last things it does because the encounter is basically over by the time they reach the beholder yeah well, the the other use for it potentially is uh, because the beholder specifically has to decide whether its eye is doing its anti magic thingamajig mm. at the beginning of its turn. So that means yes. for until its next turn, if you're in its anti magic field, it can't uh, it can't really do anything about that. So mm. for attacks of opportunity stuff yes. like that, that that the bite is useful for that. But yeah, yeah. for the most part, you're 100 percent correct. Yeah, it, yeah, it gives the beholder something to do, if nothing else. So, here's the thing. Yes, there are a lot of eye stalks. Oh boy, how many eye stalks, Travis? <laughs> I guess we've already there said are how many. <laughs> roughly ten. Yeah. Uh, almost exactly ten. <laughs> almost exactly ten. And we have been talking for an hour about beholders already. Yes. Oh shit! Sh the good thing about these is you can just say the name <laughs> of most of yeah. them. Yeah. Yeah, I was gonna suggest. Yeah, let's I'm gonna, like uh, yeah, I'm real gonna... quick rapid fire through these yeah. eye rays. Yeah, I was gonna do that the same way we did uh, monster that I can't remember recently, where I just go through all the eye rays because they work mostly as conditions, uh, and there's not a whole lot to them very much. So yeah. I'm just gonna rapid and fire like, it. And the other ones are basically just spells that exist in the book. Yes. So. Yep. so in order as we get them, basically what happens is uh, the beholder can shoot it out. Uh, shoot out a three rays per action. The range is 120 feet. The beholder has to see the target. I'm imagining the beholder kind of just like shooting at whatever moves in this paranoid panic, which is, you know, my uh, narrative reasoning for the reason why the eye beams are random. Right. It's like whatever eye stalk is moving in that direction, like mm. shoots. Yeah. <laughs> I'm being attacked. Do all the things. <laughs> so in the order that we get them, we get a charm ray which is, you know, wisdom save. All of the ray saves are 16, which is a little bit below average. We get a charm ray, uh, which is, you know, wisdom save or be charmed for an hour until the beholder charms you or until the beholder harms you. Uh, I'd rather this kind of play by suggestion rules where if the rest of the party could just slap you out of it, because as it is, I'm kind of annoyed that the beholder can just shut down a character, but mm. whatever. It's got a paralyzing ray, which is a constitution save or be paralyzed for a minute. The target can repeat the save at the end of each, each of its turns, ending the effect on a success, which I like a little bit better because you can end the effect on yourself. It's got a fear ray, which is save or be frightened for a minute, but again, you can repeat the save at the end of each of your turns. This is more or less a weaker version of the first two, which, you know, 
beholders are kind of weird in how they're balanced in that some rays are a lot shittier than other rays. In the same way that a monster can roll crappy damage on a round, a beholder can just roll cr- crappy rays. Mm. Yeah. It's got a slowing ray, which is like the spell slow. It's a deck save, or you're slowed for a minute where your speed is halved, you can't take reactions, and you got to choose between taking an action or a bonus action. This is another instance where you can repeat the save at the end of your turn. I think this is a pretty good non-frustrating way to debuff the character without just shutting them down like Charm does. Yeah, for sure. Giving the player still a little bit of agency. Yeah, while still keeping them away. It's got an Enervation Ray, which is the first damage-dealing ray we get. It is a con save, or it takes 36 necrotic damage, 88 necrotic damage, or half as much on a successful save. So this is the weakest of the three damage rays that a Beholder has, but it's also the only one that ensures damage, so it evens out a little bit. I was just going to say, and it says a lot that the first and weakest of the damage rays still does, on average, 36 points of necrotic damage uh, as one of its three rays that round. Yeah, yeah. The, it's really crazy the way to balance, like how to balance a beholder. Because if it gets all of its damage rays, that kills, man. That can kill. Very that easily. can extra kill. Yeah. Uh, and I and the damage spread is really weird. We'll get to it as they, as we get to them. It's got a telekinetic ray, which works as telekinesis, strength save, or get pushed thirty feet in any direction. Moreover, you're restrained by the telekinesis until the start of the beholder's next turn. Alternatively, you know, if the target's an object weighing 300 pounds or less, like telekinesis, the Beholder can move that. However, because, you know, it's a random ray, there's no point in developing a strategy around it, right? You can't really use it strategically, Mm -hmm. so it's mostly just there to work as telekinesis would if it happens to hit uh, a block or something. I don't know. It's got a sleep ray, wisdom save, or fall asleep for a minute. You can wake up if someone slaps you awake or if you take damage. Again, this is what I ideally would want out of the charm ray. I like the ability to, you know, circumvent not being just immediately shut down. Uh, It's got a petrification ray. Remember basilisks? Same concept. (laughs) It's a deck save or you start turning to stone and you become restrained. And then on your next turn, it's another deck save or you turn the stone, turn to stone. And if you make either save, the effect ends. So we're at a level now where the cleric has greater restoration. It's rare, but it's not as rare as it used to be. So a well-made party won't be as troubled. Some part of me is kind of worried about it since the non-deck save classes are going to have a rough time with it. But mm. I don't know. Yeah. Just give the players a basilisk beforehand. Let them make basilisk oil to <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> fix them up and it won't be as horrifying. Yeah, Assuming you don't want it to be that horrifying. Yes. Obviously, you know, if it's your D&D party for 30 years and they're fine with losing characters, do it up. But, you know, mm-hmm. if it's your first time group and you don't want somebody to be sad, you know. Your mileage may vary. Then don't give them a beholder, honestly. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah. Uh, yes. So pursuant to that, it's got a disintegration ray, which is you make a hey. dex save or you take 45 damage, 10d8 force damage. If you end up reduced to zero HP, you turn to dust. This is kind of risky because, you know, if you make the save, you don't take any damage. If you don't make the save, a pile of dust can't be raised, which is the only, yep. you know, is the only resurrection spell you have at this point. This and the next, the last ray that it gets got me thinking about damage spread. So in my experience, DMs roll the damage that the monsters do. You talk to more DMs than I do, Joe. Maybe you can speak to that a little bit more. For the most part, yeah. Um, uh, most DMs roll the damage just like you would any other attack. However, almost all, all uh, attacks in like the monster manual, everything like that, give an average. So you can just apply so you don't get bogged down by rolling, you know. 
yeah uh, for example just as a crazy number 10 d10 um, yeah. that'd be a lot to roll <laughs> yeah just an example just, you know you won't ever see that <laughs> <laughs> yeah no but um yeah no uh so you can either roll the dice and see what you get or you can take the average and know for a fact how much it's gonna do absolutely and the high amounts of potential damage that the beholder can do, it really got me thinking about that kind of damage spread. So, like, a good roll in this case could just straight out kill your wizard, which, you know, admittedly relies on a lot of really specific dice rolls. I just thought, to repeat the PSA at the beginning of the episode, you as the DM have final say on all the dice rolls you make, as long as the players don't see them and you're not cheating any of the players. Mm -hmm. And... To my mind, in a chance-based game, no one likes being one-shot. So, like, when I'm playing Dark Souls and I fuck up and I get killed instantly, I'm more fine with it. If I roll a one and I get killed instantly, I'm not super pleased. So my recommendation is to fudge the numbers a little in those particular cases. I don't want to, like, hang on it too long, but I think it's very generous of them to not just have this eye stock cast the spell Disintegrate. Sure. Which has, I think, probably... Uh, my math might be a little bit off, but has an average damage output of 75. Yeah, I can't yeah. remember what the exact numbers it's are. For I think it's 10d6 plus 40. Oh, I think you're right. <laughs> I mean, you say you say generous, but I mean, keep in mind, this is one of three attacks per round. Yeah. And yeah. We, haven't, we haven't gotten there yet, but it does also have legendary actions. Yeah, so yeah, the, you're right. Yeah, yeah. the uh, the the way that the odds are, it can do a lot of damage. It doesn't necessarily, it will not necessarily do a lot of damage, but it can really fuck up your party. Yep. Yeah, really, it's just the risk of no res. Yeah, <laughs> yes, absolutely, and that's the thing that makes it, you know, balanced compared to the minimal damage that the enervating ray does, compared to the fuck ton of damage that the next ray will do. It works like disintegration does, so if it uses it on an object, it will disintegrate uh, a large or smaller object, or if the, if the object is huge or bigger, it just takes out 10-foot cube of it. Again, you can't use it reliably, so I wouldn't build a strategy around it. I just thought I'd throw it in there for completionist's sake. There is, I will say, having been a very evil DM for the right party that enjoyed it, at mm. one point. Um, it's really fun if you use Petrification Ray and then Disintegrate, because they're technically <laughs> an object. I guess that's true. <laughs> wow, double fuck you. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's happened. Um, <laughs> Woof. Well, more but cards they, But they, they, they fucking love that shit, yeah. so you know. I think just the sheer oh-fuckness of it, I would give it a pass. <laughs> yeah. Yep. I would be like, wow, I can't even be mad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So speaking of oh-fuck, we got the final ray <laughs> that a beholder can do, the death ray. Cue maniacal laughter. Yeah. Yeah. Deck save, or you take a really demoralizing 55, 10d10, depending on your choice, necrotic damage, and you straight die if this knocks you to zero HP. So compared to the other two damage rays, this one does obviously the most damage, but it leaves behind a body. So again, you know, a cleric has a couple raised deads at this point, so a well-made party can counter this, but... Nobody likes being one-shot, so there's something to that where a good roll could kill more characters than a wizard at this point. But Orion, you you were way down for the Banshee immediately dropping characters to zero. <laughs> well, Travis, the two things could not be any different, because when the Banshee does it, it's a once-per-day attack. It doesn't kill the character, meaning the character still has something to do at each turn, and the players are way more equipped to just chuck a healing word to bring somebody back up than they are to uh, raise someone from the dead. So, like, every fighter yeah. has a health potion. If you don't have a cleric in this case, you just can't bring back your your character back. Yeah. With, Oops. With, 
with the banshee it's the case of okay if everyone fails or if almost every but one person fails you're fucked this is just you're fucked yeah 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 <laughs> yeah i again to reiterate across the episodes i'm not a fan of just being dropped out of encounter right so as mm. long as i'm still making death saves i the tension is still there i'm still doing something i'm fine with it but yeah. as soon as i'm dropped and just waiting for someone to res me i'm not necessarily having the best time yeah, yeah. And again, there's a low chance of it happening, but there's a good enough chance that I feel concerns are warranted. <laughs> yeah, you are Concernicus. It happens. <laughs> yeah, you've got essentially a three out of ten chance every round. Well, no, you've got a three, ten, three out of ten yeah. chance three times around. Yeah. Um, of, of getting one of those very painful rays. Yeah. Can it be the same one twice? I no. can't remember. If, no, you have to roll all the duplicates. Okay, cool. I couldn't. I couldn't remember. Yeah. <laughs> However, and I think we were just about to get to that. That is not. Uh, that does not exclude using it again on legendary actions. Yes. Yeah. So moving on, the the beholder is a legendary style monster. It gets legendary actions. Kind of comically, the only legendary actions it gets is more eye rays. <laughs> so altogether, depending on whether or not it gets that layer action, the beholder is shooting six or seven eye rays per round. Right, it gets three legendary actions to do one more eye ray each. Yeah. So six or seven eye rays, each one having three particular eye beam attacks. That's a lot of eye beams. Oh my god. Yeah. That's oh, so yeah. many beams. Yeah, that's a lot of things. And like weirdly, and this isn't my favorite thing about the Beholder, I think the meta test of this encounter is just keeping track of all the conditions that are going around. Yeah. It, at that point, it's like... You need sticky notes all yeah. over. It's, yeah. It's, <laughs> yeah. It's not my favorite thing lot. about D&D. It's kind of, it, it's just one of those things that each DM learns to deal with in their own special way. Mm -hmm. The plus side is that, you know, at this point, you're 13 levels into the game, approximately. You probably have your system to deal with a lot of conditions. Yeah. yeah. I kind of equate it to learning to consciously remember to have people do concentration checks. Because oh, yeah. I feel like every DM when they're starting out, it's like, oh shit, concentration checks for like the first like God, 10 I'm sessions. I'm still terrible. I'm still terrible about it. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of awkward. But you you pick it up with time is really all that can be yeah. done. Or, or you fake it if you don't. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So putting it all together, to my mind, you know, the characters reach the end of the dungeon. The Beholder is ideally awake and prepared. The Beholder is hanging out far away, possibly above the party i'm imagining for the encounter space for the environment i'm imagining like a series of tall pillars that are perhaps you know bridged together in some way the idea being that the beholder will float around kind of zelda style from platform to platform and the party will try to chase it down while you know responding to the crazy ass effects that the beholder throws at them yeah that that sounds like a pretty ideal encounter yeah, I think there's really only two ways to do it, and it's like that or the 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 multiple spires of 150 tall like yeah. columns of yeah. shafts. Yeah, I think I'm a I think I like platforms a little bit more just because 3D space on D and D mats and like if you're doing roll twenty, it gets a little awkward. Yeah, I think that having the pillars and then maybe just having a void beneath it is a little bit easier to read. Yeah, and also, like, your encounter is more video gamey, and as we personally have discussed it, video gamey is sort of a good thing sometimes when it comes to boss encounters. Yeah, I, I think in D&D you can get by with video gaminess a little bit. I was just going to say, especially with puzzles, because yeah. Lord knows, like, Zelda and Pokemon puzzles are the correct amount of dumb that yeah. players <laughs> can usually get through them. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. 
And then obviously, you know, if they fall off a platform, you introduce the layer actions with the grasping appendages and whatnot. I, I kind of like the idea of platforms because that, to my, you know, Fire Emblem brain, it gives the party an immediate capture point to hold if they need to. So, mm. like, as long as they can get to the next platform, they can kind of arrange themselves if the platforms are big enough. They can arrange themselves in such a way that no matter what condition the beholder chucks at them, they can still regroup easily enough. Ooh, a, a fun thing that could come from that encounter that, like, with the the pillars up high on the platforms is when the beholder finally rolls, like, the, the telekinetic levitation ray. Yeah, yeah. Just, like, hits a party member and moves them 30 feet out over the void. Yeah. The party has one turn to figure out how to get that person back. <laughs> Another one I've done is kind of, like, almost, like, um... It was in sort of a a warehouse scenario, but like the beholder was at the far end of the room in like a kind of like an overseer area, uh, mm. in like a, a walled off like <laughs> like a balcony area, and so you had all this cover in like the warehouse, but there were also its minions in the warehouse, so you had to like slowly make your way forward through the minions while also dodging behind crates so the beholder can't see you until you're up close, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty. That's good. pretty neat. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, essentially beholders, you gotta have some environment trickery going on there. Yeah, and for most bosses, you're gonna wanna do something crazy with your environment. I like that cover idea. I think that that might be really neat. I I imagine like a really cool scenario where you duck behind something so the anti-magic cone can't get you, and then you dimension door, like you eyeball it like Iron Man at the end of Civil War, <laughs> you eyeball a dimension door over to where you think the builder's gonna be. <laughs> yep. Or it disintegrates your cover, and then you have to deal with that. There's, yeah. there's there's a lot of stuff like that. Yeah, I think that's a cool way to handle that encounter as well. I like that. What are what are your thoughts, Travis, on the Beholder? Kind of uh, overall thoughts. No, maybe uh, not like overall thoughts, but like mechanical or encounter thoughts, really quick. Yeah. Well, mechanical thoughts. I think I like your encounter version of it the best, but I also think that that's like a good endpoint for where your encounter gets to. I think there should be like. When you start the encounter, like, get into the lair, you're on the ground floor, and then you kind of have to chase it, work your way up, and it leads you up onto these platforms high above, and then you have a fight up there. Yeah, I was... Uh, yeah. I think that is my ideal encounter. Yeah, I considered, like, a spiral staircase thing, but I wasn't... Definitely, I don't think a spiral staircase thing. I don't think a spiral staircase thing at all. Oh. <laughs> I'm thinking, I just... like, not necessarily a spiral staircase, but in, as a staircase that spirals up, like, a long, like, vertical tunnel. So mm. that it's like in the center floating and then your like party is like running up the stairs to try and catch up. Yeah, good. or in like a, a more fantastically magic kind of way, like uh you're chasing the beholder through like magic circle teleporters <laughs> through its lair, and like the final one takes you up to the top of these pillars that you saw when you entered the lair. That would be cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's like I said before, it's hard to pin down because it's so random and how every encounter checks out. I think in its best case scenario, it has that same sense of fun that wild magic sorcerers have, where it's like, ooh, anything can happen. Mm. And and for the most part, I think that the rays are balanced and not frustrating. So no matter how it checks out, I think it'll it'll still turn out well and be an interesting encounter that isn't too horrifying and overwhelming for your party. Mm. Yeah. And I, I've been going back and forth on this as I've been thinking about it. I personally like my D&D to be as deterministic as possible. So like... I I think beholders are cool. It just might not necessarily be my cup of tea mechanically. Right. 
Yeah, I was thinking about it. Like, how high would you have to jump the CR if you made some sort of special beholder that could choose which rays it used? Oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that it would be definitely up there, like at twenty, probably. Yeah. It, I think it would be approaching ancient dragon levels of bullshit. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much, because that's three like high level spells at, at per round. Yeah. yeah. I yeah, I can't think of a better way to do how a beholder is mechanically, at least with the the attacks that it has right now. I just don't know if what is there it necessarily yeah. does it for me in the same way that I like banshees. Yeah, well, what it comes down for me is because essentially in most, like we discussed, most scenarios you're treating a beholder as a boss, yeah. which means not only is it going to be an interesting counter to run, but you have to set up so much in advance of that. Why is the party looking for them? What is its personality? What is its lair like? What are what is the town? What how is it affecting the townsfolk or the people around it? Yeah. Why are you going after it? All these things are very interesting via the nature of the beholder. So even more important than like the really interesting mechanics, I think it really shines in the lore more than anything else. Absolutely, you, yeah, yeah, it gives you so much to do. Yeah, the lore is an A plus. Mechanically, it's like a uh, B for yeah, me on I, the I, on I, the I American high school grading curve. <laughs> I think I'd have to give it like a a classic numerical value. Personally, I'm thinking like a disintegration ray out of ten. Hey, Travis hey. coming in for the closing bit. Hey, but no, yeah, that's my overall I think opinion of the Beholder is that it's very similar to your guys' opinion. I think A plus for the lore. I don't know. I'm a fan of random crap. So, like, a B-plus mechanically for me. Sure. I really like that kind of... Sure. <laughs> so, Even I don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> like, So all you need is to make a beholder who took a few levels in Wild Magic Sorcerer, and then you're golden. Absolutely. Who knows what'll what happen. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> Fifteen eye stalks? But the last five all cast presentation. Yeah, the, the last five are totally useless, but... <laughs> That'd be an interesting way to nerf it. Give it more eye stalks, but they're worse. <laughs> oh my god, give it two more eye stocks. One of them does the thing where it ages you, and the other one does the thing where it makes you younger. <laughs> I kind of like this, like, Time Lord Beholder <laughs> idea that we've got going on. <laughs> yeah, pretty cool. Yeah. Pretty cool. So now we come to the point that happens every Tooth and Nail episode where we don't know what the hell to do to end an episode. Well, you know, I think this time uh, Joe's going to give us a little bit of a, I don't know, an escape rope to use a Pokemon term. <laughs> uh, by all means, you know, Joe, feel free to plug Dear DM. It's a really great show. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, if you all want to hear me ramble even more than I rambled today um, with various DMs, um, I host a show called Dear DM, where I bring on various dungeon masters from shows or games or, or various things where, where they run their games, and we answer questions sent in by the listeners about how to run the game or their opinions on D&D, that kind of stuff. So um, we've had some great DMs on before. We had Matt Mercer, Keith Baker. Um, we had just recently had uh, Devin, uh, from, Devin uh, Cholik from uh, Total Party Chill. 
Um, but yeah, uh, you can find it at NerdSmith along with these lovely gentlemen uh, at, over hey. at our page at Dear DM. Um, and yeah, it's just nerding out about how to run or play D and D. Yeah. Yeah, it was the first podcast on Nerdsmith I ever got into. Yeah, yeah, we actually do kind of, because Travis found Nerdsmith through DRDM, and I found out about Nerdsmith through Travis, so, like, the <laughs> only reason we're on here, we actually kind of have to thank you, Joe. Oh, no, I, the, yeah. the ripple effect. I le- legitimately, Travis was one of the reasons why we kept I kept doing the show through its early stages, because hey. he was the first one to start doing art, and when the first time I was editing DRDM and put your guys' promo on there, I'm like, this is a cool full circle. Like, this is awesome. Yeah. I'm sorry I stopped doing art, but I just, don't, you know. Don't be silly. That's a, the amount of art you gave is enough for a lifetime. I appreciate that. Yay. Yay. Wholesome Friendship. <laughs> now we just need to get the day where someday we're not all so busy that we can't all just have like various Dungeons and Dragons games with the various hosts of Nerdsmith. <laughs> yeah, right. That would be cool. That would be cool. So, uh, typically we end out an episode by presenting to our audience a creature comfort, and this can be, (laughs) you know, run the gamut for many things. They always involve hot chocolate. Yes, you always need hot cocoa. If you do not have hot cocoa, start there. Yeah. All right, that's a good place to start. Yeah, so get yourself some hot chocolate, listener. And, uh, Joe, do you have any Beholder-related creature comforts that you might have? Um, just go out. And make sure that your glasses prescription is up to date because you don't realize that <laughs> creeping up on you and you'll be surprised just how nice it is to realize, oh yeah, I'm seeing a little bit better. Yeah. Yeah. Keep keep track of your eyeballs, folks. Yeah. yeah. Have a good day. <laughs> Bye-bye. Adios. <laughs> <laughs>